The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week. James Heal reads his interview with new Deputy Tory Party Chair Lee Anderson. Hannah Moore writes in defence of amateur sleuths. And Matthew Wilson reads his art lead on the rehabilitation of the Rose. Up first, James Heal. Who is the worst man in Britain? According to the Daily Mirror, it's 56-year-old former coal miner and Tory MP Lee Anderson who clinched the award a year ago after criticising England's footballers for taking the knee. How did Anderson, who this week was appointed Tory Deputy Chairman, respond to the accolade? I immediately rang my parents to thank them for all their support. It's the first time anyone from my family has been voted the worst man in Britain, so I tried to win it two years on the trot. Since his election in December 2019, Anderson has emerged as the pugnacious ambassador for the Red Wall intake of Conservative MPs, He is, like his Asheville constituency, a Tory convert, having served as a Labour councillor until a year before his election. While many well-heeled Tories shy away from the cost of living issues, Anderson relishes the debate, arguing that anyone earning over £30,000 using food banks must have a budgeting problem. He won the nickname 30p Lee after he claimed that £50 could be used to produce 172 meals and feed a family of five for a week. We meet a few days before his appointment when Anderson is still a backbencher. In a parliament increasingly dominated by middle-class professionals, Anderson says he can speak plainly about food banks and other issues, given his own life experience. I can say it because I was a single parent for 17 years with two boys. I struggled. I know what it's like to put your last fiver in the gas meter. I know what it's like to have to sell your car because you can't afford to run it. So I'll take no lectures from anyone about being hard up and struggling for survival. He spent a decade working at the Citizens Advice Bureau, where he says he saw one family claim the equivalent of £70,000 in benefits. He suggests that an ignorance of the realities of social security is why so few Tories are willing to engage on the subject now. They don't know. I went to the DWP spads to tell them how much universal credit a family could get by only working a few hours a week. They hadn't got a clue. Why then have successive Conservative governments done so little to alter the existing system since Ian Duncan Smith's tenure? Too scared, because it's like picking on poor people, isn't it? When actually, most working class people would agree with me. Anderson is scornful of the backlash he receives for such remarks. If I say something that is supposedly outrageous in that place, the Commons, I get back to Ashfield on a Thursday. People will be coming out the shops and saying, you say what I'm thinking. He's become a bit of a star in right-wing Tory circles. He has undertaken a dozen engagements in the past year. Last week I did Halifax, this week I'm in Taunton, and he boasts about his booked-up diary for the next two months. I've done Bournemouth, I've done Chipping Norton, I've done loads, and I've even booked up a Christmas now. The membership like that red-to-blue story, that working-class Tory story. It's the party membership that's asking me to go. Maybe some of my colleagues think I'm a little bit too divisive, he continues, but I'm of the mind that half the population will hate you, whatever colour you wear. His promotion comes just a few weeks before Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, unveils her new Stop the Boats bill to halt migrant crossings. Anderson is a vocal critic of the failure to deal with the small boats crisis. For some reason in this place, saying the obvious, they just call it populist. It's our job to represent opinions of people in our country. If people are angry about small boats, then we should be angry. He visited Calais last month where he says new migrants eager to reach Britain are referring to the UK as El Dorado. They are seeing a country where the streets are paved with gold, where once you land they're not in that manky little fucking scruffy tent. 
they're going to be in a four-star hotel. And they know that Serco is buying up houses everywhere to put them in for the next five years. Why wouldn't you come? His solution? I send them straight back the same day. I put them on a Royal Navy frigate or whatever and sail it to Calais, have a standoff, and they just stop coming. He praises Rishi Sunak for two big bones he's thrown to us, a Cumbrian coal mine and a pledge that those who arrive here legally cannot claim asylum. For his new appointment, he was planning a campaign on food poverty and the restoration of home economics to the school curriculum. Another topic of concern is crime. Would Anderson support the return of the death penalty? Yes. Nobody has ever committed a crime after being executed. You know that, don't you? 100% success rate. He pauses. Now, I'll be very careful on that one, because you'll get the certain group saying, you can never prove it. Well, you can prove it, if they have videoed it, and are on camera, like the Lee Rigby killers. I mean, they should have gone, same week. I don't want to pay for these people. He has his own experience with crime to share, having received a couple of death threats which are being investigated by the police, and attempt at blackmail too. I don't know what they're blackmailing me over, I just pass it straight to the police. What does Anderson wish others knew about him? It's that when I speak, I'm speaking from a position of strength. When I talk about food banks, or poverty, or whatever, I've been piss poor, I've had two kids on my own, I've had no money, and when they talk about the NHS, it saved my wife's life, it saved my life, I know what I'm talking about. Deprived areas, there's nowhere more deprived than the street I was brought up on. Don't dictate to me that I'm some toffee-nosed Tory that's been educated at Eton. All the social problems we've got, I've lived through them, and helped people with them. That was James Heal. Next, Hannah Moore. Two weeks have passed since Nicola Bully went missing while walking the dog in her Lancashire village. The police say their working theory is that she fell into the river, but that they're also keeping an open mind and pursuing many inquiries. The head of the underwater team searching the wire for Miss Bully says that in 20 years he has never seen so unusual a case. The police say that they would like to speak to as many members of the public as possible, and yet have also called the level of online speculation totally unacceptable. But is public speculation really so wrong? There's a big difference between hindering the police investigation, which is a crime, and generally being interested in Miss Bully's disappearance. If the amateur sleuths are indeed getting in the way of the police or causing distress to Miss Bully's family and friends, then they should stop, of course. But I do not think their curiosity should be condemned. Crime enthusiasts get a bad rap. There's an assumption that they must revel in other people's misery, and that there's something sick about a fascination with suffering. But that argument shows a remarkable lack of interest in the way that we think. Of course the public is invested in a story like Miss Bully's. She disappeared from her village just after dropping her children off at school. She can't have left the area by the main roads, and she's accounted for in all except a ten-minute window. She has vanished. How can we not speculate? Britain has a long history of sleuthing and fascination with true crime. In the golden age of English theatre, playwrights regularly used true crime stories to explore the human condition. In 1605, a rural aristocrat named Walter Calverley murdered two of his children and stabbed his wife in the family's Yorkshire home. The events caused a sensation. Pamphlets describing the case circulated nationally, and the story was turned into a play in 1608, a Yorkshire tragedy. More than two centuries later, Arthur Conan Doyle was obsessed with newspapers, keeping hundreds of cuttings in his study for later reference. Not only was Doyle a member of an organization called the Crimes Club, which met to debate unsolved cases, 
but he also managed to overturn two convictions by re-examining the evidence himself. Sherlock Holmes first appeared at a time when the country was fascinated with the possibilities of forensic investigation. Britain in the 19th century was teeming with new ideas and initiatives in policing. The Home Office had started publishing a weekly crime bulletin towards the end of the 18th century, detailing cases and appealing for witnesses, which was sold alongside other newspapers and gazettes. The London Metropolitan Police was established in 1829, and in 1842, only 13 years later, Scotland Yard created its first detective unit, professionalizing what had before been a semi-professional group of private sleuths. The men of that unit and their particular qualities captured the public imagination, Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins included. Detective Inspector Jack Witcher was among the first of that original unit, and the case for which he is best known was initially as baffling as that of Miss Bully. In 1860, a young boy went missing from his bed and was found murdered in a privy in the grounds of his father's house. Police at first interrogated only the servants, because the idea that the family could be culpable was considered too awful. Eventually, Witcher deduced that he had been killed by his 16-year-old sister. The story is the basis of Wilkie Collins' 1868 novel, The Moonstone, as well as Kate Summerscale's brilliant 2008 non-fiction account, The Suspicions of Mr. Witcher. True crime stories like this are told again and again, not because people enjoy imagining the murder of a little boy, but because we are desperate to know how such awful things can happen to normal people and how to prevent them. Curiosity is only human. That was Hannah Moore. And finally, Matthew Wilson. You may think that roses have always symbolised courteous romance, but art history describes their smuttier private life. Consider the pouting red blooms in Dante Gabriel Rossetti's Venus Verticordia, which the art critic John Ruskin considered so obscene that he refused to continue his friendship with the painter. Ruskin admired the execution when he first saw Venus Verticordia, in Rossetti's studio in 1865, but later reviled the crude suggestiveness. I purposefully used the word wonderfully, painted about those flowers, he later wrote to Rossetti with deep concern. They were wonderful to me, in their realism. Awful, I can use no other word, in their coarseness. Ruskin's anxiety reflected a common understanding of the red rose as a symbol of lust. The Victorian period witnessed a fad for floral symbolism, and multiple books were published to define the language of flowers. The red rose was deemed scandalously sensuous. The association persisted into the modern world. According to a well-known rumour, the enigmatic rosebud of Orson Welles' Citizen Kane alluded to a private joke of William Randolph Hearst's, the inspiration for the character of Charles Foster Kane, for whom it was a code word for the pudenda of his mistress, Marion Davies. The link between roses and lewdness extends like a taproot back into the classical world. In the poetry of Sappho, from the 6th century BC, there are references to planting roses at the shrine of Aphrodite, goddess of love and sexuality. Aphrodite and her Roman equivalent Venus are therefore usually accompanied by velvety-petaled roses when they are represented in art, as you can see in Botticelli's Birth of Venus and Titian's Venus of Urbino. Ancient Greek poets such as Sappho and Anacreon inaugurated the association between roses and love. But in the hands of Roman historians, roses became linked to decadence, immorality, 
and rampant sexual desire. This reflects a more widespread Roman cultural obsession with roses, which they farmed in the flush fields of Egypt and Spain and imported on an industrial scale. Our modern transnational flower industry is no different. As many as 250 million roses are harvested for Valentine's Day from climate-controlled farms in Colombia, Kenya and the Netherlands and delivered at the perfect moment in their life cycle to customers across the globe. In Horace's Odes, roses are consistently presented in the context of love affairs and sumptuous feasts. According to Suetonius, Nero demanded a courtier throw a banquet in his honour and spend no less than four million sesestes on roses. The Historia Augusta, meanwhile, describes how the scandal magnate emperor Marcus Aurelius Antonius, known as Heliogabalus, delighted in dropping flower petals over his dinner parties from an overhead trapdoor. His overexcitement led to bigger and bigger payloads and ended with several guests reportedly suffocating under a sweet-smelling tsunami. This episode is immortalised in a painting by the 19th-century artist Lawrence Alma Tadema. Tadema emulated the decadence of his Roman forebears by having fresh batches of roses delivered throughout the winter from the French Riviera so that he could better capture their plushness. Victorian authors were obsessed by the notion that roses were indecently heady. Swinburne, for example, contrasted the lilies and langers of virtue with the raptures and roses of vice. Rooms that witness scenes of sultry indulgences and untamable passions are decorated with roses in the writings of Emil Zola and Oscar Wilde. Tales of the decadent Romans and their mania for roses influenced all these 19th century writers and artists, but they were also enthused by the courtly literature of the Middle Ages, particularly the Roman de la Rose of 1275, written by Guillaume de Loris and Jean de Meun. This strange poem describes a dream lover and his quest to possess an alluring, delicately scented and voluptuous rosebud. He spies it in a walled garden, but it is tantalisingly out of reach. After a series of fantastical misadventures and the author's various scholarly digressions, the protagonist finally encounters the alluring flower. The clinching episode is a scantily-veiled allegory of sexual contest, the author bragging, This much more I'll tell you. At the end, when I dislodged the bud, a little seed I spilled just in the centre, just as I spread the petals to admire their loveliness, searching the calyx to its inmost depth. The poem was incredibly popular in its day, and its influence spread like a lava flow across Europe, inflaming readers in their thousands. But the work had two formidable critics, the church and a certain French female poet. The Romain de la Rose was an affront to the Christian church because they had a separate tradition of symbolism about roses that had taken hold a thousand years before the poem had been penned. Ambrose of Milan, writing in the 4th century AD, described the rose as the flower of paradise and the Virgin Mary as a rose without thorn. Later writers, including Bernard of Clairvaux, perpetuated this image. It inspired a tradition in art of depicting Mary surrounded by roses or suggesting her presence with a single rose, as the Spanish artist Zerberan did with such understated grace in the 17th century. The holy significance of roses is further manifested in artefacts like rosary beads and the golden rose of the Pope, which is blessed annually on the fourth Sunday of Lent and periodically awarded to a worthy recipient. In February 1402, Christine de Pizan, reputed to be the first woman to earn her living through writing alone, 
was completing a series of letters decrying the influence of the Roman de la Rose. She was dismayed by the cocksure, objectifying masculinity of the poem. She believed it to be a manifesto of misogyny, showing men treating the opposite sex as a passive commodity to be hunted and possessed without consent, utterly corrupting the Rose's Christian symbolism. So, the same year, de Pizan completed a poetic response titled Le Dit de la Rose. Like the Romain de la Rose, it also described a dream vision, but here, but here she imagines a chivalric order of knights who, rather than exercising their male privilege to plunder what they desire, give their sweethearts a rose with honour without assuming reciprocation. Unlike the earlier poem, de Pizan's describes the dream occurring on Valentine's Day. This would have been seen as a fashionably modern point of reference as Valentine's Day had been nominated as the Day of Love only 20 years earlier by Geoffrey Chaucer in his 1382 poem Parliament of Fowls. De Pizan would go on to write further tracts proclaiming the rights of women, including the Book of the City of Ladies, which describes the construction of a mental citadel by and for women under the tutelage of justice, reason and righteousness. Her writing is seen as an important precursor to feminism, but her other accomplishment was to make what is probably the earliest recommendation to send roses to your sweetheart on the 14th of February. She rescued the flower's reputation, transfiguring it from a symbol of decadence, excess and carnal desire into one of chivalric decency. Out of prurience came purity. The Valentine's Day rose was born. And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week.